0: Coming up next on Contemplate. If we're focused on him, if our perspective is on him, then tragedies can't stop us and difficulties can't stop us and not having enough money can't stop us and having too much money can't stop us, right? Nothing can destroy us. Nothing can hold us back because our perspective is on Jesus.
1: Have you ever wondered about the parable of the lamps and oil? Well, today, as we continue in Acts chapter 1, Pastor David Robinson from Acts Church will explain that and the importance of keeping our focus on what really matters. We're in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and here's Pastor David.
0: Let's bring this around as to Jesus' return. So the first thing we have to understand, if we want to understand how these two things that I've just mentioned relate to his return, is we have to understand the first century Jewish traditions for a marriage or a wedding. Okay? There's some traditions about how it works. That's how the, these guys were first-century Jews. They understood what's how the first-century Jewish wedding worked. So they could put all this in context. Now we're all going to understand how it works, so we can put it in context. Okay. So here's the deal. After the bride was chosen, a bride price would have been paid to secure the contract to marry the bride. Okay, And then after that, the groom would go back to his father's house. Then when he got back there, there'd be a room or a dwelling, a mansion, added on to the father's house. They would prepare it for the couple who was going to get married. And as they did this, The father was keeping his eye on the construction, and he was the one who got to decide, and he was the only one who got to decide when that dwelling was ready for the couple. The son didn't know. Nobody else knew. And the father could decide that time any time he wanted. Generally, it happened at nighttime, often late at night or early into the pre-dawn hours of the morning. This was a tradition. This is how it worked. So at the time that he decided it was time, he'd say, son, it's time. And the son would be like, all right. And he'd go get all his friends, and they'd get some torches, and they'd go down to get his bride from her house. Meanwhile, the bride's job during all this time was to always be prepared. She had to always be prepared for when the bridegroom would come. okay? Because he could come at any time, and she never knew the day or the hour. She didn't know, so she always had to be prepared. And one of the things that would show that she was prepared is in the window of her house, she would have a lamp burning. That lamp would be burning to show that she was prepared to go because I said, I told you, they often come at night to get her. She has no idea what day or what hour, so she's got that lamp burning. Now here's the thing. If she ran out of oil, if she didn't stay prepared, if she didn't have enough and that lamp went out and the bridegroom came and saw that there was no lamp in the window... It would be considered a rejection. And the marriage was over at that point. Because she, by not having that lamp going, was saying, I'm not ready. I'm not waiting for you. I'm not going with you. That was a choice that she could still make. So, as to Jesus' return, let's, let's put it all together. So he chose his bride. That's you and me. It's the church. He says many times, Right? The bride of Christ is the church of Christ. We're going to go to the wedding supper of the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus. We're going to go to the wedding supper of the Lamb when he comes back and gets us. We're going to go be married, basically. Okay? And he paid the bride price for us. Right? On the cross. He died for us on the cross. He, He paid the price for us. He redeemed us. He made it so that we could be his. And then, as we see here, he went up to go prepare a place for us in his father's house. And the good news is he's coming back to get us. And we don't know the day or the hour. But we're supposed to be ready and waiting for him. We're supposed to be like the wise brides, prepared. Because Jesus is coming back. That's what Luke is saying, He's saying Acts is about facts. Jesus is coming back. Remember, when Luke was writing this, he didn't know that it would someday be a 2000 years old religious book. That's the way we see it, right? Oh, the Bible, it's a religious text for it's ancient, it's so on. He was writing it right then. He believed these things were true, not just him, but every Christian that followed him, generally speaking, has believed that Jesus was coming back for his church. And that's what we believe, because that's what it says. That he's coming back for his church. He's shown us in all these ways. We believe he's coming back. So, here's my question for you. We're supposed to be waiting for his return. What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for Jesus to come back? Are you ready for his return? You got your oil stocked up, been to Walmart? You ready for it? This week, I was expecting a package. I had ordered something online. You know how this goes, you order something online and you're waiting for it to come to you, right? And I got a Federal Express, FedEx uh, tracking number. And so I'm on the internet checking my tracking number. I put it in the thing and I'm seeing it's okay. It's gone from Indiana. It's in Iowa now, okay. You know, and I'm, I'm every day. I'm checking this thing. I'm re, re- refreshing the page so I can see if it's coming. Because I'm excited about this thing coming. It's a, it's a guitar amp. I was waiting for this thing. During that week, as I refreshed that page a hundred times, waiting for this, how many times did I take a look at the clouds? Not many. So I have to ask myself, what was I waiting for? What am I waiting for? Last week we talked about functional saviors. You may remember this. So I'm going to go over it real quick if you weren't here. There's a pastor named Mark Driscoll. He's got himself in all kinds of trouble. But one of the things that he said that was, that was really good, I think, is he talked about how we make functional saviors. We create for ourselves functional heavens and functional hells. And then we create, we look for functional saviors to save us from our functional hells and get us to our functional heavens. So here's an example. If, um, I am lonely, and loneliness is my functional hell, and getting married is my functional heaven, I'm out looking for a spouse to save me from my functional hell of loneliness and get me to my functional heaven of being married. If I am in debt, that's my functional hell. not being able to pay my bills, and my functional heaven is financial security. And so my functional savior is money. I'm looking to that functional savior to get me money. We're basically looking for um, our heavens and hells are based on our problems or our, our fears. Those are the, our hells. And the pleasures that we desire, those are our heavens. That's how we thats how we live. Now, there was a uh, philosophy that Luke would have been familiar with as a learned man, as an educated man. It was called Epicureanism. And it was a relatively simple philosophy. It basically said, um, pleasure is good and pain is evil. Pretty simple, right? Pleasure is good and pain is evil. So, their whole deal was when you go to the Epicurean church, the whole deal is how do we get the most possible pleasure and avoid the most possible pain? That was their whole deal. This was, this was something that was very common in the Roman world. And Jesus comes against this. He flips this upside down as he so often does, as he did with the way the world looked at women as he did with the way people thought about religion and trying to earn salvation, all the things that Jesus did, he was always flipping everything upside down, and he does it here. He says, stop worrying about getting your pleasures and avoiding your pains, and look at me. Have your perspective be on me, not on how to save yourself from pain or to gain yourself pleasure. This is countercultural. This is what Jesus is saying. Seek me. Keep your perspective on me. So Peter, as he's in the boat that night, and Jesus is out walking on the water, and he says, hey, let me come out there. And Jesus says, come on. And he keeps his perspective on Jesus. And as long as he keeps his perspective on Jesus, Peter's walking on water. As soon as his perspective changes to the waves, he's sinking. And praise God that he saves us from drowning, right? But when we keep our eyes on him, for some reason, the waves don't seem so big. So, if our perspective is on temporal pleasures and temporal pains, then we're going to see-saw emotionally every time we either get what we want or don't get what we want, because perspective drives our emotions. Perspective drives our emotions. Whatever our perspective is, is going to drive the way we think about stuff. See, this is our life. This is the Western world. This is America. This is the whole world now as we export our dysfunction to everybody else. We don't get what we want. We're sad. We get what we want. We're happy. We're up and down. We're up and down. We're all over the place. Go to the bookstore, and what's the biggest section? Self-help. Right? There's 800,000 self-help books, and all they need is one. Right? All they need is one. But there's 800,000. Why? Because we're constantly looking for a way to not feel the pain or so that we can feel the pleasure. We can't deal with life because we're always focusing our perspective on these functional heavens and hells and our own pleasures and pains. There's no such thing as self help. There's only Jesus' help. That's it. Jesus' help. That's what I need. That's what you need. See, you can't get there by yourself. You can't make yourself right with God by yourself. And you can't even really do good for good's sake by yourself. It's through him. It's through his power. It's through his Holy Spirit. It's through his sacrifice on the cross that we're made right with God. It's only Jesus' help. There's no book in Barnes & Noble that's going to get you there. Well, okay, they do sell Bibles there, but... You know what I mean. In the self-help section. There's no book there. So I'm going to read you a story about perspective and about how it drives emotion. Okay? Here we go. This is a true story. It happened to a real person. And this is what he says. He says, I had gone to catch a train. This was April 1976 in Cambridge, United Kingdom. I was a bit early for the train. I'd gotten the time of the train wrong. I went to get myself a newspaper to do the crossword. And a cup of coffee and a packet of cookies. I went and sat at a table. I want you to picture the scene. It is very important that you get this very clear in your mind. Here's the table, newspaper, cup of coffee, packet of cookies. There's a guy sitting opposite me. Perfectly ordinary looking guy wearing a business suit, carrying a briefcase. It didn't look like he was going to do anything weird. What he did was this. Suddenly, he leaned across, picked up the packet of cookies, tore it open, took one out, and ate it. Now this, I have to say, is the sort of thing the British are very bad at dealing with. There's nothing in our background, upbringing, or education that teaches you how to deal with someone who in broad daylight has just stolen your cookies. You know what would happen if this had been South Central Los Angeles... There would have very quickly been gunfire, helicopters coming in, CNN, you know. But in the end, I did what any red-blooded Englishman would do. I ignored it. And I stared at the newspaper, took a sip of coffee, tried to do a clue in the newspaper, couldn't do anything, and thought, what am I going to do? In the end, I thought, nothing for it. I'll just have to go for it. And I tried very hard not to notice the fact that the packet was already mysteriously opened. I took out a cookie for myself. I thought, that settled him. But it hadn't. Because a moment or two later, he did it again. He took another cookie. Having not mentioned it the first time, it was somehow even harder to raise the subject the second time around. Excuse me, I couldn't help but notice. I mean, it doesn't really work. We went through the whole packet like this. When I say the whole packet, I mean there were only about eight cookies, but it felt like a lifetime. He took one, I took one. He took one, I took one. Finally, when we got to the end, he stood up and walked away. Well, we exchanged meaningful looks. Then he walked away, and I breathed a sigh of relief and sat back. A moment or two later, the train was coming in, so I tossed back the rest of my coffee, stood up picked up the newspaper, and underneath the newspaper were my cookies. The other cookies were his cookies. The thing I like particularly about this story is the sensation that somewhere in England, there has been wandering around for the last quarter century a perfectly ordinary guy who had the same exact story, only he doesn't have the punchline. So the next time you are convinced that you know everything and that you are right, make sure you check under the newspaper first. You might just be missing something important. So do you see how perspective drove this guy's emotions? When he believed that the guy was stealing his cookies, he was angry and confused, frustrated. When he realized that he had been stealing that guy's cookies, he was embarrassed and horrified. His perspective... Drove his emotions. Whatever it was that he thought was the truth determined how he felt. And we're the same way. Perspectives drive emotions. So if our perspective is looking to heaven, looking to Jesus, and waiting for his return, then the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Right? If you've heard this song. What are our pleasures and our temporal pains compared to Jesus coming back to get us. They're nothing. They're nothing. If we're focused on him, if our perspective is on him, then tragedies can't stop us, and difficulties can't stop us, and not having enough money can't stop us, and having too much money can't stop us. Right? Nothing can destroy us. Nothing can hold us back because our perspective is on Jesus. We're waiting for him. We're waiting to see him face to face, finally. We're more than conquerors so long as we're in him. He tells us to abide in him, right? Here he's telling us, hey, look to heaven. Look to me. Look to my return. So I have two questions. They're the same question. What are you waiting for? And what are you waiting for? Here's what I mean. If your answer to the first question of what are you waiting for is you say, I'm waiting for Jesus' return. That's my deal. I'm waiting for his return. Then my second question is this. Then what are you waiting for? Get going, get started, start living the book of Acts, start doing what the church is supposed to do. So what should we do while we're waiting? Jesus tells a parable um, about, it's called the parable of the talents, and a talent was just a sum of money. And there is a uh, master and he has three servants, and he gives each of the servants a certain number of talents. To one he gives five, to one he gives three, and to one he gives just one. And then he leaves. He says, do what you need to do with this money, with these, with these talents. And so the first guy goes out and does his thing. The second guy does the same, and the third guy the same. And eventually, after a long time, the master comes back, and he goes to his servants, and he asks for an accounting. He says, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with the talent I gave you? And the first guy comes back, and he says, I doubled it. It went from five to and ten. And the master's like, awesome. You've done well. The second guy comes back and he says, I went from three to six. I doubled mine. The master says, that's awesome. You've done well. The third guy comes and says, I buried mine in the ground so I make sure I wouldn't lose it. Because I knew that you'd be mad if you came back. And I had lost any of it. And he says, fool. Idiot. You could have put that in the bank and at least gotten some interest on it. Instead, you did nothing. I'm going to take even what I gave you away and give it to the guy who's got something. He says, what are you doing with what I've given you? So while we're here, while we're waiting for him to come back, and hopefully we won't have to wait long, this is what we need to be doing. We need to be following this commission that he gave us to go into the world, right? To make disciples of Jesus, to teach them the things that he taught. We need to be loving. We need to be giving, and we need to be serving. So first, we need to be loving. Here's how we love God. We're supposed to love God, right? First and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. So how do we love him? We love him by reading his word, by getting to know him, by spending time with him. We love him by praying. We love him by talking to him. And we love him by doing the disciplines of Christianity that have been going on for 2,000 years, that Christian women and Christian men have found to be fruitful in their lives by following those examples. That's how we love God. That's one of the ways we love God. We also obey him. That's how we love him. He says, if you love me, obey my commands. So we obey him. We follow his commands. And then we teach our children and our spouses and our girlfriends, our boyfriends, and our friends, and everybody around us, to also follow his commands, not by taking our Bible and beating them over the head with it, but by our actions. We show by our actions that we love God. That's how we do it. That's how we love him. And then we proclaim him. Don't be embarrassed of the Lord. Don't be embarrassed of Jesus. Be strong and mature in your relationship with him. You've got to be talking about him. If the only time you say Jesus is in this building, and you never talk about him anywhere else, it's kind of hard to believe that you love him very much. I've got a wife who I love. Her name is Tiffany. And if the only time I ever said her name was a couple times a week, she probably wouldn't think that I loved her very much. Right? Proclaim him. Love him. Show him that you love him. This is the things we're doing while we're waiting. Giving. you got to give your life to him. Remember, there's no self-help. There's only Jesus' help. You can't get to heaven without Jesus. He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. So you got to give him your life because he gave you his you got to give your whole life to Him. That's your time, your talent, and your treasure. That's your time, right? Again, if I spent no time with my wife and did nothing with her, I spent no time doing anything for her. I think that at some point you start to say, "Hmm, this isn't much of a relationship. This isn't much of a relationship." So I got to give my time, my talent. I got to give my talent to God. If I've got if I've got things that I can do and I can do them well, I got to put those in the employ of God and use them for the kingdom and i got to give him my treasure. Ooh, right? That's this. this it's my wallet, right? If I say I love him, if I'm waiting for his return, and that's my deal, and that's my perspective, and that's all I care about, I'm turning my eyes to Jesus, that's all I want to see, where's my money going to be? Is that going to be shown? Am I going to be able to see that? If somebody looked at the way I spent my money, would they say, yes, that's consistent with someone whose perspective is on Jesus? you got to think about that. And then serving. So we talked about talents. Find out what you're good at. Find out what you're gifted at. God's given you gifts. Every single one of you has gifts that God's given you. Important gifts. Use your gifts to serve him. Find out what they are and use them to serve him. And don't complain that someone else's gift is more important than yours because it's not. Because the body takes all its parts to work right. And that's that's made clear in Scripture that we all have different gifts, and we're all supposed to use them. And that not one is any more important than another one. See, if the body was all eyeballs, that's a horror film, not a body, right? You got the eyeball thing moving around. That's not that's not what we're looking for when we're looking for a healthy body. Just two eyeballs, right? Two ears, etc. But find out what you're good at. Find out what God's gifted you at, and do that. So these are the things we're doing while we're waiting. We're loving, we're giving, we're serving. We're following the commands. We're following his commission to make disciples. So let's get our focus on Jesus. Let's get ready for his return. I don't want to be sitting there with an empty lamp or a talent with a bunch of dirt on it because I buried it in the ground when he comes back. That's not where I want to be at. Let's encourage each other. Let's console one another. Let's let our hope be in Jesus. Only in Jesus. Let's let our value come from him. Let's not have it be in little tiny, cute guitar amps. Right? Or even marriages or kids or money. These can be good things, but they're not the thing. Jesus is the thing. Keep that in order and everything else will be added. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Keep an eye on the clouds. Keep your eye full of oil and get to work what are you waiting for?
1: It's so easy to get everything all goofed up, isn't it? We get all consumed with stuff that really doesn't matter when the important thing is to live for Jesus right now and right where we are. And here at Acts Church, we would love to help you do exactly that. So come see us in Vancouver, Washington this Sunday morning. Get directions and all the info you need at axchurchnw.org. or call 360-885-9000. Thanks for listening. Hope to meet you this Sunday and that you'll check out the next episode here on Contemplate.